1: The sharp
2: has such teeth there. And it shows them So just welcome everybody to this latest night. episode of Matt Clinton's Take with me, Andy Clark and Matt Macklin. Hope everybody is well. Matt Clinton, how are things with you? Just you've just been resolving a few technical issues at the start of the yeah, podcast I've, there. I
0: mean my iPads, I don't know, decided to go weird. So I'm doing this on my phone, so I hope. Nobody rings while while we're doing it.
2: Well, well, we'll we'll get we'll get a window into your popularity in that case. We'll see uh, we we'll, we'll see how much in demand you are. Uh, the sounds good though. The sounds good. So hopefully all will be all will be well. Hope everybody else is well. Weather's picked up a bit, which is always enjoyable. Beginning to feel like we might be heading towards uh, some kind of a, a summer after just torrential rain um over the course of the last the last few days. Anyway, I'm not here to give you a to give you a weather report. So on to today's episode and today we're talking to someone who has been on the list right from the from the very beginning, but we were planning to to wait until we could sit down and do it in person, not something we've been able to do for ages because we knew we'd be seeing him around at press conferences and and at various places. Regularly because we did pre-COVID, um, and we thought that would be that would be more fun. He's a pal of ours, so it's always better to sit down and have a cup of coffee and, and a chat. But as it turns out, this is actually the perfect time to speak to him because he has got a book out. It's been released over the course of the last few days in the UK and the USA, and it is a very very interesting read. I always assume a lot of knowledge on behalf of Macklin's Take listeners. And you'll be aware of this book, I think, if you've got a a boxing presence on your timeline. It's called Damage, the Untold Story of Brain Trauma in Boxing. So that's the subject that we're mainly going to get into today. We might touch on some other bits and pieces towards the end, but it is a very involved subject, a very important subject. And, And I believe this is a very important book that he's written. Um, it's not his first one, not by any stretch. Just over my shoulder, if you're watching this on YouTube, you'll you'll, you'll be able to find one of his lurking. There, there are two actually, no three. There are three. He's written four, I think, in total. So I've got them all now. He sent me a copy of a copy of of Damage. Uh, he was editor of Boxing News for a, for a good spell. He's been in and around boxing for a really long time as a participant from from a young age um, and in a professional capacity as a journalist for not far off, I think, about twenty years now. Which, considering he's I believe a couple of years younger than me, um, early forties. That that is an impressive, an impressive stint. Um, Tris Dixon, how are you? That's a really great billing, isn't it? <laughs> could, have, could have listened all day. Um, yeah,
1: I'm doing well, thanks. Yeah, actually, you just reminded. Me. So, my first the piece, first piece I ever wrote was uh, it was an old it was a friend of mine from my amateur club Salisbury ABC, and he was boxing. In a cattle market at Froome, and I covered his fight and I wrote uh, several paragraphs sent in a picture to the local paper Salisbury Journal this was 1996 they used the paper they used the picture they used the words word for word and I didn't get a byline didn't get any credit but that was the first piece I wrote back in 1996 so yeah 25 years ago
2: no, you never you, you you never forget that kind of first one, do you? I remember the first time I got sent to do any reporting for the radio when I was working for TalkSport. That would have been kind of late, late 2000. Uh, it was Reading against Gray's Athletic in the either first or second round of the FA Cup. Um, Reading won 4-0. You won't be interested to know. But, uh, God, I was shitting it. I tell you, it's like, I don't know if, I, I don't know how your experience was, but I remember I'm doing like 20, 30-second reports Um probably about every 10 minutes and for the first one uh, just, I just I, I'm surprised I, I'm surprised I managed to get any words out <laughs> and then the one at half time I had kind of like a bit of a brain freeze and, and and dried up and it felt like it went on forever but when I listened back to it it went on for about two or three seconds which which was long enough which was long enough but yeah you you I mean you, you go a long way back in boxing Um, as I said as a you know you boxed as a, as a youngster and and to get onto the onto the professional side of it as quickly as you did and specializing in that particular subject you are a very long serving member of the of the boxing press for somebody who just isn't who just isn't that old
1: yeah it feels like I've been around uh, a long time you know plenty of people have come and gone from what we call press row over that time obviously there's been <clears throat> different inca- incarnations of tv stations with different bits of superiority promoter swings and all the rest of it has been for me just just shy of 70 trips to vegas uh covered uh i think i've been i think i've covered boxing in 12 countries four continents um Done, done a lot and that's one of you know and it's, it's been it's been a great sport to me and I've been being fortunate that I, I've always said uh, I, in fact I've always said to myself I've never said this out out loud I always thought that I had a role in boxing and that I had that, that I had a purpose in boxing and it was kind of funny when I did when I became the editor of Boxing News I was thinking right I'm going to shake things up now and then you sort of get lost on the treadmill and you know it's like living in an echo chamber and nothing really happens and I think Matt would feel my frustrations and probably Claude did before. And Claude probably chuckled to himself when he, when he heard how what my ambitions were and how I hoped to change the game. And then I thought when I did Ricky's Ricky Hatton's autobiography, I was thinking, well, maybe this is what I'm here for. Maybe it was to maybe my mission was to try and help Ricky navigate a tough period in his life. And I thought maybe this was my purpose. And then when the Road to Nowhere came out, I was thinking, well. You know, and obviously that that left that was the last interview that so many great fighters did. You know, before they passed away, trying to find those old guys in America. I was thinking maybe that was my purpose in boxing—to give those guys one last day in the sun. And I was thinking, you know, I, I was, and for, for a long time, I was quite content with that, thinking, you know, so many of those guys I was pleased to get their stories out, sort of one last time. And then obviously now, now we talk, and damages come out. I'm thinking, well, maybe this is it. Maybe this is that what I was supposed to do all along maybe this is the sort of eureka mo- moment my my epiphany and, and the thing that I was supposed to do and and I don't know maybe you know Matt Christie said it quite well in in uh, Boxing News and Thomas Hauser in a re- review of it as well said basically it will only really make a difference if anyone reads it and actually acts upon it. Uh, there's plenty of scope for change in boxing, but now uh, let's see who's paying attention and let's see who actually does want what's best for the fighters and can actually take their eye off this pay-per-view treadmill for more than five minutes and actually start to think that we actually need to get our house in order.
2: Well, that's that's the perfect lead-in to to, to discuss the book and, and everything uh, around it. We'll get back to some other things a bit later on, uh, particularly uh, Boxing Life stories. Um which I listen to every week. Uh, you're a fellow practitioner, a fellow podcaster, of course, and I think I think some of the listeners to that will probably quite enjoy a, a little bit of a, a little bit more of a Life and Times of Tris Dixon and, and listen to you answer some answer some questions. But the the book I've been dying to ask you this since um, since I since I discovered you were do, you were doing this, which is a while ago now, because this has been this has been a long term project. You kind of answered it to a degree there, but at what point did you? How did it happen that you realized that somebody was going to have to try and force this subject, this this elephant in the room, out into the open? And at what point after that did you think to yourself, well, it's going to be me then, I'm going to do it?
1: So, yeah, the two points to that, just in terms of the backstory, I had wanted to write a book about life after boxing for a little while and didn't know really what direction to take than just, you know, the, the normal stuff. Uh, and then I'd written, a, and Matt might remember this, back in about 2011, 2012, because I spoke to Matt at the time, I'd written a long piece about depression in boxing for Boxing News. And it, it was something, I put something on, because I had the Boxing News Twitter handle at the time, and said, said... Uh, I'm writing a piece on depression in boxing. If anyone wants to drop me a line, DMs are open or something like that. And I went away for a cup of coffee and came back, and my DMs were full, filled, filled with fighters from around the UK and the US and some big names and some smaller names like Matt. And uh, you can laugh at that. <laughs> and um, yeah, and, and and I was I was thinking, right, okay. I thought this was a big issue because we lost some people. We lost Lewis Pinto. We lost the, the Smith brothers. Um, to suicide Um, we'd also lost Dean Powell we'd lose uh, Glenn Leach from Boxing Monthly and I was thinking and I've had my bad spells over the years as well and you think you know this is big in the sport but I suppose in a more direct answer that was always that was all of that was in the background and then a more direct answer to your questions I was reading the NFL book The League of Denial which is about the concussion crisis over there And I was reading that while on a holiday with my kids. And um, I was reading about this CTE, chronic traumatic encephalopathy. And I was thinking, well, these football players they're describing, NFL greats, they're like, a lot of boxers have had these same sort of issues over the years. Like they've lost fortunes, been depressed, behavioural issues and all the rest of it. And they were putting it down to head trauma. And then obviously going through the book, I had this big eureka moment where it was actually there in black and white. It said basically CTE is what was referred to as punch drunk syndrome, which is obviously, you know, everyone in boxing knows that it's being punch drunk or a more scientific name is dementia pugilistica, but that's been outdated, improved, incorrect anyway, because dementia is not always uh, present in it. So CTE, the stuff that footballers had was actually punch drunk syndrome, which is what boxing had. And then doing a bit more research the first medical paper about it came in 1928 by Harrison Martland and it was actually called Punch Drunk and I'm like geez like American football is doing all this it's caused massive change and I've only just learned it's the same thing and I've been in boxing by that stage more than 20 years and I'm like no one ever told me any of this no one ever told me about the links with Alzheimer's Parkinson's dementia and ALS no one ever told me um, about CTE and what punch drunk syndrome was. Sure, you, you know the terminology or someone might be a bit punchy and it was always very derogatory. And I never saw that with the NFL greats. There was always a lot of sympathy. And that was one of the things I really, stigmas I really wanted to attack because there shouldn't be any kind of disgrace in being, an in inverted commas, punchy because these guys are warriors and they've put everything on the line for boxing and the sport and, and, and fight uh, for, for their futures to give themselves a better life and for our entertainment and they deserve a lot more credit and respect than they get for just being called punchy and people just tutting at them and 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 almost forgetting that they exist so it was reading that really and thinking geez this is actually you know the NFL's now reluctantly addressed it and people in boxing don't even know it's boxing's problem and I was thinking you know let's do it let's do it it sort of then weaved in the stuff about depression that I'd mentioned, and it weaved in the, the, the aspect of doing something about life after boxing. And then obviously it, it weaved in this massive thing where, you know, it, it, it was something that, you know, it's very hard. I remember Thomas Hauser telling me years ago, um, you know, good books break new ground. And I was like, this is new ground. Like no one's touched this. No one's done this. Although that Martin paper was 1928, nearly a hundred years ago, there's been there's been next to nothing in popular culture about this Uh, medical literature yes popular culture not so much Uh, and I thought let's let's do it and then the idea is obviously with the book is to to help educate people and to be sympathetic towards fighters and their families and obviously there's some there's some there's some really moving stuff in there with families and with boxers where you know I want to be sympathetic towards these guys and and not mock them because some of them Leon Spinks in particular, you know, there's a story in there where Brenda Spinks, his his now widow, is talking about him being mocked on a radio station, how he spoke and stuff. And, you know, our guys just deserve so much more than that. And I, I want to try and do, do, do the best I can to try and put a stop to that
2: you mentioned the NFL there and you used the perfect word when you said they reluctantly addressed it because th- there was a lot of reluctance, wasn't there? They didn't want to know. They wanted to wash their hands of it, deny it at all costs. And then they got to the point where they couldn't, um, at which stage they, they then dealt with it. W- with boxing, it's kind of different, isn't it? It's this situation where everybody's always known, but everybody's kind of agreed to shrug their shoulders and pretend that, it isn't that, Matt. From a from a pro's point of view, when you start, how aware were you when when you were a, a younger man um, of just how dangerous it is, or de- how dangerous it can be? Did Did you look at fighters who had retired and see what had happened to them, and think, well, that's an inevitable consequence of boxing? Or did you think, well, it could be boxing, it it could be something else, it could be a combination? You know, let's not worry too much about that now.
0: No, I think I was aware of it. Look, you're getting punched in the head, aren't you? You know, you don't have to be a rocket scientist to know that that ain't good for you. But it's so overshadowed by your ambitions and your hopes and dreams and then the drive for success and glory that it just pales into insignificance. In comparison, you know, it's almost like an accepted risk, you know. I won't say the names, but there was there was a guy who I sparred um, when I first turned pro. Um, and I would have known him quite well, even through, as an amateur, he would have been someone that was, you know, a bit older than me, um, was, would have been boxing, was a good amateur and ended up boxing professionally. Um, and I remember sparring him and I sparred him for a week or two and then I didn't ask him back to spar again because his reflexes were shot. And he, I couldn't miss him. And, you know, even at that point, I could, his speech was starting to slur. And I just thought, nah, I, I just didn't feel good about it. You know what I mean? It was like, he wasn't, he was nowhere near the fighter he was. And it was just like target. He just wasn't, I felt uncomfortable. You know, it was, you know, and I just thought, so, you know, that that was something that was directly, I could see visibly, it was someone that I'd known. I still knew him. I was speaking to him. We were aspiring. I could see the deterioration in his speech, you know, I haven't seen that person in many years, but I'm guessing it's only gone, got worse. You know, it won't, it won't have gotten better. Um, You know, so of course, you know, that look, having a hard career, hard fights, too many punches, it's not gonna, it's not gonna end well, but it's a, it's a funny one because some fighters that I've met, you know, who are a lot older, who are legendary, who had absolute wars, are completely coherent today. They've, they, it's like there was no effect, and there's other guys that I would, I would have thought in comparison didn't have anywhere near the sort of trauma. Obviously, I don't know what they did in sparring, but I, you know, I'm, I'm, I, certainly from their fighting careers, didn't have the same sort of brutality in in their careers. Yet they're they're struggling to speak properly. You know, it's it's I mean, it's it, it is a shame. Tris is right. I mean, Tris talked there about. You know stigma. I don't know if it's a stigma with some people. Maybe it is with some people, but I think it's pity, and not pity isn't all oh, pity. But I think there's people don't know what to do or what to say that they feel a lot of sympathy, but they also feel a little bit. Oh, what do I say about it? You know what I mean. I think there's a bit of that as well, as opposed to people laughing at them or being, you know, judging them or or, or looking down at them. I just think they feel uncomfortable. That they don't know yeah. what to say about it or how to be with that person because they can see they're visibly, you know, deteriorating. Um,
1: that, that's yeah. that, that's, that's another like the big book? reason for the book, by the way, Matt, is to make people comfortable talking about the uncomfortable, so that these people aren't just ignored, and so that people do know what to say, and so that they are able to have a conversation with them, and, and so that it's no longer the elephant in the room, you know, and that that it was it was to try and peel back that, that scab, so that people don't feel awkward about it. You know, when these guys in the NFL go and meet and obviously I, I haven't been privy to it but I can't imagine them being the same way that boxers are about it you know where it's that been being that sort of elephant in the room all this time. It was
0: interesting hearing you, know, you talk there about how the NFL it was a conversation that people didn't want to have it's almost like the it's almost like people don't want to accept that it's a problem. You know you see this in in, in many areas in life people that are struggling with booze. I've seen it with people with families where their families are like don't want to accept it. It's almost like they're embarrassed, or they, they're trying to pretend it's not there. And that. now it is there, and it's not going to go away until you do something about it. It's like, you know, it, I think I think you know. I don't think this is an issue that's just. I mean, I don't want to go off on a mad tangent, but it, 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 like you say, if you don't, if you can't accept there's a problem, if you're in denial about it, then there's accepting there's a problem is the first stage in. in Getting over any problem because if you don't, if you don't, if you're in denial, there is a problem in the first place. How can you even start to begin to uh, solve
2: it, Tris? That's that that has been a huge problem, hasn't it? The the denial factor, um, and I think one of the reasons why there has been so much denial down the years is because people have felt that if they talk about this, if they bring it out into the open, it might it might see boxing banned. A, a great example of that is. Is that the great man himself, Ali? He he always insisted that it wasn't related to boxing, and they described it as Parkinson's, and the family stuck to that. But but apparently, if 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 you spoke to him privately, he knew it was because of boxing, but he never wanted to say it because he thought it might damage the sport. He thought it might get the sport banned. But you can't look at it in that kind of binary way because this is these are people's lives.
1: But also, like, that's such a quantum leap, Andy, like, uh, and I don't, I don't, I'm not, I'm just not on board with it, not in terms of what you're saying there. But yeah, to, to go from having it to not having it, you know, like in the book, obviously, I've outlined different things that can change different parts of the culture, different parts of regulation, different habits in training and all the rest of it that can mitigate the risk that fighters face you know in the band thing it's just a, it's just an easy thing you know Don McRae has written a very interesting piece well I have to say it's interesting because it's about the book but in The Guardian today and uh the by the time this comes out it will be online as well but and it, and you know the first comment I saw was oh you know head trauma is bad for anybody boxing should be banned and it's like it's not that and I'm not a woke guy do you know what I mean I'm not one of those millennials you know I'm an old school guy and I love the sport and I love I love boxing it's given me loads and and I don't know where my life would would have gone without it you know it's kept me on on the straight and narrow and people like Ali and Aaron Pryor their voices can be heard in the book saying that you know they they wouldn't change the second half of their lives for what happened in the first and if they could do it all over again they still would and those are really loud and, and important voices because it is down to choice and and, and and that's a big argument for me. Um, but the, the ban thing is just a it's just a it's just a huge quantum leap from having it to not having it. And I find it, you know, people who want to go that way, I find it ridiculous. You know, people are, as far as I'm aware, people aren't now talking about banning soccer, they're not talking about banning rugby union, they're not talking about rap, banning rugby league, they're not talking about banning the NFL. But boxing's such an easy target, you know, as soon as there's anything negative, oh ban boxing, you know do me a favor as frank would say it's but, just but, but, it's, but trace
0: what obviously writing the book you're bringing massive awareness to it that's i guess that's one of the primary hopes of it but what are the proposed solutions
1: so there's loads so the, you know there's loads loads and different things that boxing could do for a start a handheld organisation or an organisation that holds hands worldwide where there can be a brain scan database so that you get a brain scan and then you get you get it checked regularly and compared over time at the moment in the us right so one state might require you to have an mri one state might require you to have a cat scan one state might require you to have both and another state might require you to have neither and that's just in the usa so these loopholes, where you know, like the fellow you said you were sparring, like that sort of stuff, needs to not happen. And, and the stuff with Nick Blackwell that we've had and stuff like, there needs to be the education where people know that um, you know people that people have been damaged, they they shouldn't be allowed to to continue. And I think you know this is part of, another part of it is where the neurologists need to have more understanding about the actual sport too. So the neuro the neurologists working within boxing need to be able to see what a boxer was like in 2010 and how they are now and not just track their brain function but cognitive function as well then you look at the culture of the sport and you know you talk about um you know for example the, the, there's other bits you know mickey ward for example said he thought 90 of his damage and he and mickey's now suffering um he thought 90 of his damage was done in sparring and if he could do it over again he'd spar less and he'd spar differently I think that's an important voice to hear. And when you look at the Ingle Gym, for for example, they do a lot of body sparring there and then they'll bring the head stuff in maybe two, three or four weeks out from a fight. And so they'll reduce that daily grind of trauma over, you know, again and again. Freddie Roach said he was sparring four or five days a week regularly. You know, and now he doesn't have his guys do any more than two. And I think obviously there'll be there's, there's, you know, more than me more than me about the ding dongs in the wild card, but um, I think you know Freddie's learned some harsh lessons along the way. Um, So yeah, and then and then you look at the culture as well. I think fighters need to be fighters need to understand a lot more about the risks uh, that they have while concussed and while they're sparring with headaches. For example, um, you know it's an easy one, but look at Nick Blackwell for example who. Obviously, said he, after the fact that he was put in a coma by Chris van Jr. That oh, actually, I was badly hurt and rattled by George Groves a week before. You know, well, you know, if that's what happens, and and you're going into a fight like that, you need to not fight. I'm afraid, you know, for the best for the best case scenario, long term, you're gonna have to come out of that and wait for another opportunity. And but but fighters are too stubborn. And you know, I wasn't much of an amateur. Only had a couple of fights and all the rest of it. But I remember when I went over to train with Kevin Rooney in in the Catskills and I was sparring this kid called Leonard Pierre, who ended up fighting Kelly Pavlik in the pros. And Leonard beat the shit out of me one day, pardon my French. And the next day I went back to the gym to spar. My head was pounding. Like when we'd been road running in the morning, my head was absolutely splitting headache. And Kevin says to me, oh, I want four rounds out of you today. What am I going to say to Kevin? You know, I'm there to impress him. I wanted to, but obviously with hindsight now, that's the sort of culture where you need to be able to have a conversation and say, actually, you know, yesterday, you know, I, I took this shot and it was freaking massive and it's really rung my bell. Like, I'm not sure you're going to get the best out of me today. And those are open conversations. And I know it, it makes me probably sound quite woke in this sport, but you know, times change. And with, with the knowledge that we have now, there's loads of things that can change, small things like that, some larger things, but culture, the organisation of sport, sparring, uh, and those are all things that can be changed. I'm not saying they can all be enforced. Certainly, you can't obviously go around and tell people in the in the, in each gym, "Oh, we're going to regulate your sparring." It can't be regulated. But if trainers and managers want what's best for the fighters and their health, like so many of them say they do, then let's start seeing who's who's who is looking out for the fighters.
0: Hey, hey, ki- hey, kids. hey, everybody, sitting here with a famous Slovenian philosopher. How are you doing, sir? I am uh, in hell, thank you. Are you uh, excited about something? I am excited about this latest uh, CIA-funded venture. A CIA venture? Yes, it's called the Desire and Capital Podcast. Oh, what is it about? I refuse your fascist question. Well, there you have it. Listen to the Desiring Capital Podcast
2: coming soon to a bourgeois platform near you on your marks. Get set. Go. This
1: is so crazy?
2: So Matt in, in in your experience of of being a pro, and you talked about sparring a bit earlier on, do you think it's it's that area that it would be the easiest to to make some changes in greater education for for trainers and fighters and and, and, and sparring, you know, that is, you know, so much damage can be done in sparring because I just wonder whether what happens on the night, whether it's that easy to change that because that is boxing and that's, that's what it is. But in the gym, I I think untold damage can be done in the gym and you would know better you know better than me. Is, is that the one area where you think things actually could be changed?
0: Without a doubt, and you know, I'd probably agree and echo with what Chris said about Mickey Ward. They're at ninety percent of the damage being done. Inspiring, you know, when you're on, when you're primed, and you're ready, and you're sharp, and you've got the adrenaline pumping on the night. Yeah, you get hit, and the gloves are smaller. Of course, some of the fights are brutal, no doubt. But you know. In the gym, when you're a bit heavy and you're not as sharp, and you're trying to get fit, you, you, you get hit a lot more. You, you take a lot more shots. And, yeah, you're maybe not getting bruised up a bit. And you've got head guards. But the, the brain trauma is still getting – the head's still getting shook. You're still losing X amount of brain cells. Like, you know, Trish described there how we felt after a spa. I, I can't even tell you how many days i felt like that after like I had some brutal spars because I spied quite hard and – I was in gyms where the, that's how they did spar. You know, in Billy Graham's gym, we sparred hard. But what I would say about Billy's, we didn't spar hard for six weeks. It was usually a couple of weeks. We didn't massively, it was, we didn't do weeks and weeks of sparring. We, we, we got pretty fit first. Then we sparred the last, you know, you probably did maybe three weeks of sparring. Um, and we didn't do, you know, 10 and 12 rounds, like six rounds. And then we'd bring the intensity up in the rounds with the bar bag or the body belt. So, you know, I think he was on the right lines, although I don't know if it was case of preserving, you know, health and head injury or or more just trying to not burn out because, you know, the two kind of run hand in hand anyway, a little bit. I've spoken to you before. And then I think I did on on the podcast about how being over in the wild card, you know, I've seen war after war after war, I was involved in them. Do you know what I mean? But And I ended up injured and the fight never happened. And I I, I said to you, you know, if the fight had happened, then I'd have continued on the way I was going sparring like that for another four or five weeks. There wouldn't have been a fight anyway. And if there had been a fight, I'd have been a shell of myself because it was all left in the gym. You know, you can't have ding-dongs every day of the week in the gym and expect to come out and skate. It's not going to happen. Or unless you're someone like... I see Manny Pacquiao sparring who's got unbelievable feet. He's got great speed. And really, he was doing 10 and 12 rounds three days a week. But he was absolutely knocking fuck out of the sparring partners. They weren't really hitting him because he was he was too good for them and he was too quick with his feet. But, you know, if you're, if you're that type, if you're, like I said before, if you're a Ricky Hatton type of guy who takes one to give one and he, and he brings an intensity and he does get hit because he's trying to close the canvas and he's getting in and until he's super sharp, he's going to take a few on the way in. You know... Ricky, Ricky only sparred probably for two weeks, five or six sessions. Because if he sparred any longer than that, he he wouldn't. He would have left the fight in the gym. But I've seen in the gyms in America and, and and Tris Willow as well. I have seen those guys spar for five and six and seven weeks and spar ten and twelve rounds and three or four different sparring partners. And you know, you, you I think I think it's a bigger problem over there uh, because because of that, how much they spar. I think in the UK. I don't think they spar as much, as hard, or for as many rounds. And I think that's why it's not as big of a deal here. I'm not saying it isn't a deal, but it's not. In America, there's so many great fighters that you think, God, they're, they're, they're really punchy now. And it's like, you know, they had, I'm not saying they didn't have hard fights in their careers, but I think a lot of that damage was definitely done in the gym. And that is the area where we can probably regulate it. Like you say, on the night of the fight, How can you stop it being brutal? It's boxing, it's going to be brutal. But you can, I think you can, in the gym, that's where I think everyone across the whole board, across the sport, that's an area where we can maybe look at things and think, hmm, this doesn't need to be as intense as often.
1: Yeah, and just, you know, if I may just add to that, Andy, when you look at the NFL and their procedures, what they've done, they haven't really... They, they've taken out, obviously, helmet-to-helmet helmet contact, or supposed to have done. I think it still happens. But what they've done is they've changed pre-season and they've changed training things. So they're only allowing a certain amount of contact. Um, and so, obviously, that's really where Matt's referring to. Like, behind closed doors, when you're not being paid for it, don't do it. You know, But when the bright lights shine at showtime, that's the sport. Get on, you know, fight your ass off.
0: Mm. But it's a funny one, Tris, because to perf- to be able to do it on the night, there has to be a level of intensity in preparation. But so I, I I think you do need a couple of dress rehearsals. Sure, but I don't think you need it three. I don't think you need it three, four times a week for six weeks. It's too much.
1: Yeah, no, I agree. I agree.
2: To to what extent do you think, though, that boxing as a sport is, or, or rather, is not? set up in a way that's going to facilitate or even make any of this kind of change possible because the the one thing we run into again and again whether it's talking about titles whether it's talking about fights that should be made that aren't but whatever it is the problem is is that we don't have a governing body that takes responsibility uh, and that is answerable to by everybody it's it's commissions all over the place it's governing bodies here there and everywhere it's sanctioning bodies it's this TV, that TV, that promoter, this promoter. And do you think that there are enough people, putting it bluntly, within the sport, within positions of authority, who are actually that bothered about about making these kinds of changes and making it safer for the fighters? Do they care enough?
1: Well, let's, let's see. I mean, this is, you'll know, you'll know this both of you, you know, more that you'll be more than aware of this, probably the top 1% of the guys in the sport make 99% of the money. So it's not really about having enough people on the ground to do it. It's about the movers and shakers having the time and the effort and the inclination to do it. Uh, I don't want to name names. People know who's in that 1% of powerful people in the sport, but they're the ones with that, with the power and the money, To do it, it's whether they've got the inclination. Hey, listen. When Robert, when Robert Smith tried to set up a um, pension fund for fighters here, uh, you'll know because you've read the book, Andy. As a spoiler alert, but uh, he he said he set up this pension fund for, for fighters, and he couldn't get one person to pay into it. But then you know that's because a lot of the smaller guys obviously can't afford ten another ten percent coming out of their purse, and this is part, part of where the issue comes. And this is where I say the people with the money can make a difference. But obviously, when they get to the big money, then obviously they've earned that, and they don't want to share it, and it's understandable. But obviously, if everyone was to chip ten percent into an organisation, some people will be chipping in a fiver or a tenner. Some people actually even pay to get on shows, as you know as well, and some people will be having to lump in. Four or five million, you know, it's not—it's not quite fair, is it? So it—it's it, going to going to take people with power, organisation, and the will to do it, to get it done.
0: Well, that's the same, Trish, as tax, as tax paying tax. The people who earn a billion pound a year are going to pay a lot more tax than the man who earns ten grand a year. But it's—he's he, got a lot more, hasn't he? Yeah, so, no, hey, I, I,
1: I agree. But you can also get there. You can also understand the sentiment. Basically, you know, if someone's chipping four or five million to that; they're basically floating the whole thing for everyone else.
2: I mean, what, well, what, well, from the inside of it as a as a fighter, Matt, and you know the business side of it really well too. Do you think there would be much kind of? motivation there really for people who are at the top of the system in terms of making the money promoters as well managers sanctioning bodies everybody is there the motivation there for them to really change a system which frankly at the moment works works fine for them
0: well even if you did have certain individuals that were willing and that wanted to they probably realized that them alone isn't enough that it's going to be so sort of futile it's going to make such a negligent effect or impact what's the point it's like boxing so fragmented between different commissions different sanctioning bodies titles etc i mean it's chaotic really we understand it because we were are in it you know but it, it's such a like tris said there you, know, you only go how many different commissions are there in america where some commissions you have to have a ct scan some or cat scan some it's got to be mri some you don't need any at all i mean how, how do you even if you're an individual person with influence how much influence do you have when it's so fragmented like that you, yeah you can you can you can you can be personally want to do your best but then you get to a point and think well am i i'm fighting a losing unless Enough people are on board with me. There's no
1: point. Yeah, I suppose one of the things you could hope for is, you know, say the British Boxing Board of Control teamed up with Nevada and New York and some mm-hmm. of the influential commissions and created some sort of break, or, not a breakaway, but some sort of superpower of organisational structure that was the envy of the world and other people just wanted to join. I mean, I don't
0: want to misquote Thomas Hauser, mm-hmm. but we did a, we did a, a podcast with him a while back at the Joshua... Ruiz fight in New York and he talked about how these commissions and how people are appointed and etc you know there's a lot of corruption there's a lot of self-interest there's a lot of you scratch my back I'll scratch yours going on so it's like I don't know unless there's enough until there's enough people in in positions of power that really want to make a change where it's basically top of their agenda I don't see how we I don't see how we get there.
2: It's difficult. It, it it is definitely difficult, but I don't want to paint some kind of bleak picture here because it is very important that that this is that this is addressed and and, and Triss has put a lot of hard work into trying to make yeah, a, a big I, step here.
0: And I don't want to cut you shorthand in and I don't want to pour water on it either. It'll be doom and gloom. Look, where there's a will, there's a way. And people like Tris writing books and creating awareness is massive. But enough people have to read it, have to be aware of it, and Want to make the change because we can all sit here and talk about how bad it is and what should be done, but it's action that makes things change. If not, nothing changes, if nothing changes, so the only way we can have all the awareness in the world and we can all talk about it, but until we put the action in and make those moves and make those phone calls and write those emails and meet those people and lobby for change, it, it, it's not going to change. You know, so look, what 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 Tristan's done is, is unbelievable, but we need more of it.
1: Hey everybody, this is Moto GP from the Nokomoto Motorcycle Podcast. Join us every week while we rate, review, ride, philosophize and generally obsess over every single motorcycle make, model and style that could possibly exist, plus news and racing. That's the Nokomoto Motorcycle Podcast for Moto One Podcast Network Studios.
2: Do do you feel like you've got that much kind of support because reading the book you know there's 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 so many people who know so much about this who feel like no one's been listening to them they feel like they've been talking to themselves and and things you know things do change they can be changed and you can have situations where all of a sudden people are more receptive to things and they start listening to things you you look at how some sports down the years have changed and, and how things in society have been altered and things that used to be allowed seem completely ridiculous and, and unthinkable now. Um, an example I always come to for something like this is, you know, when I was a younger man running around town, everybody smoked indoors. Everybody smoked in pubs, in offices, in houses, everywhere. It was just what everybody did. And then there was a smoking ban. And I look back on that now and I cannot believe that it was ever allowed things do change, things don't oh, yeah. change, but how, how does Tris, how does it start? You know, how does, is it, is the power here with the fight is is there some power with the fighters? Can, can they, can they become more educated and say, I'm not going to spar that hard or I'm not going to take that fight or, or yeah, how do you see that, it?
1: Definitely. And I think, you know, that's a key thing. And obviously, you know, you've got kids who look up to fighters and, you know, there's messages that can come out from fighters. Remember after, Anthony Joshua fought Andy Ruiz. He did an exclusive on on Sky, and he said he didn't know what concussion was. And you know that's not the kind of message that needs to go out there to to people in the sport. You know, people. This is what Sport Matt says. You know, oh, you know whether it's we know the risks or getting hit in the head isn't good for you. And then you've got the heavyweight champion of the world saying I don't know what concussion is. It's not. You know, this is those are opportunities to educate and to have people talk about it. And and. Yeah, I don't know. I think I think you've hit the nail on the head, though, Matt. I think you know the stuff about um, the organisational structure. It can be, it can do your head in, and it's not just on medical grounds. You know, obviously, when in the in the wider realms of the sport, you look at uh, drug cheats who get banned in one state and go and fight somewhere else, or you get guys who you know who failed at different medicals, whether it's for an eye test, they go and fight somewhere else, and you know those loopholes are part of the problem as well that need to close up to allow fighters to, to have a better life after boxing. We've obviously mentioned Ali already. You know, he went through one of those famous loopholes where he couldn't get a license to fight in the US, so he fought Trevor Burbick in the Bahamas. You know, it's, it's outrageous that that sort of stuff can still happen in 2021. And we've had, you know, in the book, there's, there's a, a notable mention of, of a fighter who lost his life a couple of years ago. He was serving a 90-day suspension somewhere. And he snuck under the radar and fought within 70 days or something and, and died.
0: I was just going to jump on then. You, you brought me onto a subject which I was actually going to bring up. And that's performance enhancing drugs. <laughs> you know, apart from the fact, forget forget the, the fair play element, you know, about winning and losing and having an, an advantage in a level playing field. Look at the health benefits like. Really, in boxing, and, and listen—if you lose the hundred meters race, someone cheats you out of it of the Tour de France, thats horrendous because it's, it's fair, you know, fair play, and it's cheating. But in boxing, when people are getting smashed in the head by professional fighters who can deliver a substantial amount of force, and you know, fatigue is there to protect you, fatigue, tiredness, pain—it's all there to protect us, really. But when you go beyond that, because unnatural stuff. Like, you know, what damage is happening there? You know, personally, I think if somebody takes performance, enhances drugs, and and, and it was proven, and they killed, and someone died in a fight, that should be murder, as far as I'm concerned.
1: Yeah, well, obviously, they're becoming stronger and fitter and faster through illegal aids. Yeah. you You know, it's... You know, eth- ethically it's just such a it's such a taboo thing not just in sport but like you said in this actual sport it's probably worse than than other sports uh just in the sense that you know of, of the consequences and obviously here we are talking about brain trauma and actually mm-hmm. someone is getting bigger stronger and faster superficially or artificially mm-hmm. and able to inflict more damage as a consequence of cheating it's it it just it just to say it doesn't sit right with me i mean you're not far off where i am with that in terms of you know a, you know manslaughter assault you know mm-hmm. it's, it's, it's and you know i'm <laughs> going on a bit of a tangent here but some of these guys have actually failed tests and kept kept wins on their record yeah. astonishing i mean even the person taking the
0: performance enhancing drugs you know he could be doing himself damage by pushing on harder than what he you know, normally would have been able to.
1: Well, that's a good, that's a, you know, Margaret Goodman's a a great one to talk about that from Vada where she talks about, you know, people generally aren't, don't have a clue what they're putting into their body. And, you know, the people who are taking, then there's the argument about recreational drugs and saying, oh, well, that's not going to do anything. But obviously if you're you're doing recreational drugs and then fighting, yeah, it might enhance your performance, but it's also going to put you at substantial risk as well. You know, whether you're going to be, getting dehydrated and I think there's, there's there's loads of different things you know one of the things that and I haven't talked about this in the book but I, I also wonder when you look at sports and how sports have moved forwards and you see you know some of these guys are taking on electrolytes in half time and all the rest of it and different things in sport and boxing is still just left with water like I do wonder if boxing doesn't need to look at um, fighters being able to have something in between rounds you know I'm not sure that's a conversation that's worth having you know, you see, obviously, in foot, whether it's football, whatever they, they go off, they have their Gatorade or whatever it is. But obviously, we talk about dehydration a lot in boxing. If fighters are running a risk. Then it seems to be an opportunity there for for them to hydrate and get some goodness in their boxing without actually cheating.
2: Yeah, as long as it was standardised, I don't see anything. I, I don't see anything wrong with that. As long as it was obviously the same thing available to to everybody sure. else. So, do do you think uh, we said earlier on? I I kind of set it up as there are changes that can be made in the gym, but on the night, things can't really be changed too much because that's the sport and that's kind of the way it is. Um, But what could be, do you think, maybe just tweaked on the night? You you look at the New York State Athletic Commission, for example, after what happened to uh, Magomed Abdesalamov, they have their their protocol now, don't they, where the doctor could take extra time at the end of a round to... Look at a fighter, and what they're basically trying to assess there is con- is concussion, is, is is trauma. There, I think, because that's what the the extra time is 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 there for. But that's just in in New York. I mean, what kinds of things do you think can be done better?
1: Well, I think on one night? of the obvious ones is when you when you look at the book and some of the voices in there, whether it's Doctor Nitin Sethi or Doctor Doctor Margaret Goodman, they are they've both been quite open about the type of doctors that are on hand on fight night. So yes, that you might have a neurologist, you might have uh, someone who works in ER, and those are probably the two best doctors have ringside, but you might also have a doctor that works in orthopedics, but yeah, it might be great if you've got a broken hand, but if something's going on with your head, and you're concussed and, and and that kind of stuff, they're probably not the right person to be ringside on a fight night. So, you know, I think that's a, that's a pretty quick change that could be done so that you standardize the type of doctor that isn't allowed ringside and that is doing the work
2: one thing that i found really interesting was and this was a little bit of a theme that recurred with a couple of people you spoke to i can't remember who the second one was but the first one was definitely george foreman and he was a massive advocate of clean living as being a means of reducing the risk of of suffering um cte in later life now he's not a doctor george foreman uh, nor am i um and as you say in the book, on on numerous occasions, the it's difficult, and the doctors in the book say as well, it's difficult until they've looked at a lot more brains um, and know the circumstances of the people who uh, who owned them. It's difficult to know exactly what causes these these problems in later life of fighters, whether it is just the head trauma, whether it's that um, plus um, personality whether it's a combination of the two but George anyway was completely convinced that if you live a clean life 24 hours a day 365 days a year as a dedicated professional then you 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 will increase your chances of of emerging unscathed significantly Uh, and he has so far
1: yeah I mean you know obviously George was a a great guy and it's great to have his voice in the book um obviously you can't tell what's going to happen down the line but obviously he is getting up there in age but obviously we were all saying the same thing about george shavala until a few years ago and then george started to started to show bad symptoms and and all the rest of it um yeah it's it's a tough it's a really tough um thing sorry i lost my train of thought there
0: where were we you're like george foreman
1: yeah oh yeah and and healthy living sorry that's that's me. Um, yeah, so the healthy, yeah, the, it is a common thought. And, you know, the neurologists say, you know, if you're going to give yourself the best chance, then it's probably best not to pick your brain with booze and to not take drugs because, you know, there's a fair chance that after a lot of head trauma, there's fireworks going off in your brain anyway. And what you don't need is to add to that concoction with brains that, sorry, with, with drugs that can alter your brain function. Um, I know obviously in the book as well, I think Tony Jeffries talks about it in the book as well, like he's, he's now not drinking at all because he wants to give himself the best chance. Mickey Ward, who I think used to love a few back in the day, has really wound down his alcohol consumption. So and I think that's a big thing. You know, certainly a big thing for me is, you know, I'm, I'm very much an advocate of fighters living the life and staying in and around their weight class the entire time because their careers are short. And obviously I don't see the harm, you know, I see these posts of uh, fighter training on Christmas day and saying, Oh, no, no Turkey for me or training on the birthday and no, no cake for me. I'm like, well, it's only a small window. You know, it's not that hard to, to miss a few years. Like, I mean, I'm 42 and not fighting, but I still train on Christmas day, still train on my birthday. And it's still, you know, it, it is what it is. It's, it's a small sacrifice, but to do, you know and, and this is the thing it's like so boxing it's not a hobby it's not a game you know and, and I know there's this is cliche I've heard Matt say it many times you don't play boxing and living the life I'm sure I'm confident I'm no scientist but I'm sure that will help fighters down the line um, if they're not drinking all the way through if they're not having to dehydrate and cut weight ridiculously if they're not trying to fight in the wrong weight classes and losing ridiculous amounts of weight to try and do so there's no harm in being a proper athlete for 10 or 15 years to give yourself a better life after boxing
0: what 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 happens is you i mean i'm sure you all know i I know plenty of people i've seen them around and i know i know i've even more people that you know they've abused alcohol drugs as well you know these are things that chemically change or change the chemicals in your brain you're up high you're down low sleep deprivation. You know, if you're doing coke, you can go for days boozing, not eating, not sleeping, hallucinating. You know, that's fucking up your brain chemistry. Do you know what I mean? You see people who have, who have partied hard for years. You see rock bands and different people in the music industry who have sessioned and partied hard and they're shot. Do you know what I mean? Their brains are shot and they haven't taken one punch to the head. Then you've got the boxer who has a manic career, sparring hard, war after war, probably boozing and doing drugs in between fights, probably hitting it even harder than after. So, you know, that person down the line is going to be shot. But what was it? Was it the boxing? Was it the booze? Was it the drugs? Was it a mixture? And I guess that's what the, um, the doctor you spoke about there, Trish, is saying. Like, you know, in order to form a fair test, all the variables have to be the same don't they but if you you know if this person hasn't just boxed hasn't just took punches but he's also burnt the candle at both ends he's also took drugs he's abused alcohol you know where where do you put which was it was it a
1: combination of all exactly and and that's where you got to factor in some of the famous boxing you know um criminal cases as well, you know, whether it's Carlos Monzon, whether it's Ike Ibiabuchi or Tony Ayala, like, were these guys damaged by boxing or were they born with criminal minds or did they emerge from some kind of child trauma? You know, were they destined to, to always go wrong in their lives or was it brain fog? We don't know, but obviously this is what the huge fighter study in Las Vegas with more than 800 boxers and mixed martial artists has sort of been built to try and find out, to sort of balance all these imponderables as well as socioeconomics of a fighter and their backgrounds, try and get to the bottom of really how much is too much.
0: What was the documentary on Netflix about the New England Patriot player?
1: Oh, Aaron Hernandez, yeah. Oh, Do- yeah. So Dr. Aaron McKee studied uh Aaron Hernandez's body uh brain, and I went and interviewed Dr. McKee for the book. And yeah, I mean that's that's all yeah, again that you know, that's probably what brought you onto it, obviously the criminal mind, a guy who'd who'd had, uh, what was it, a couple of murder charges and then killed himself. And, you know, again, you know, we're getting dark now, but, you know, suicide's obviously a a big thing as well. Loads of fighters over the past. We touched upon it right at the very start of this. But then going back to, you know, years and years, you know, suicide's been a big thing in boxing.
2: New guests every week, compelling interviews that you want to hear. Check us out wherever you get podcasts. One star recruits. Absolutely, absolutely. But uh, you know these discussions are bound to get dark at at, at stages because these are these are serious issues. Um, and as you say, the reason why people have have shied away from them for 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 too long is because they're uncomfortable. Um, they're not pleasant at times uh, and and that's why this this kind of this kind of debate needs to be brought more out into the open. Matt what do you think can be done with regard to educating young fighters and making them more aware of the of the risks because i don't think it would really serve too much purpose to try and to try and scare people um you know and and, and say this is what could happen to you and, and possibly some older fighters who are were, who were still clear enough, but aren't doing so well, would go and speak to younger fighters. I, I think if you go too far one way with it, then in my experience of, of elite athletes or aspiring elite athletes, that will be met with denial. They will think, well, that won't happen to me. Um, and then they probably won't think about it enough. You need to kind of strike a bit of a balance there don't you to try and make people aware but also not be too heavy-handed with it
0: yeah it, it, like i said before when i was young and i was turning pro and i knew of course we're aware of it but it pales it it's so overshadowed by your ambitions your hunger your desire chasing dreams and glory that's so much more attractive and you're so focused on that that the the possibilities of injury, or and all the rest of it, it's, it's just it just pales into insignificance, and it's almost just forgotten about. Or, but yeah, maybe denial as well. It's possibly that, because maybe if we if we if we looked at it too much, we wouldn't, you know what I mean? We wouldn't do it. But I, I don't know what the answer. Is. I don't know about if there's an, the awareness or the education is on the young aspiring athlete. Bucks. I don't. I don't think that's where the sort of focus should be. I, I think it's more on the coaches really the medic the commissions these kind of people and look promoters are making plenty of money out of boxing tv networks are making plenty money out of boxing you know trish said there some fighters are only getting a few grand a fight you know tend to throw money into that whether it be a pension fund or a contribution towards a healthier better way they're probably not going to want to do it TV networks and promotional companies that are making multi multi millions, maybe this, maybe there should be a bit more of a squeeze put on them to throw a bit back to set up this sort of thing. I I, I don't know, but you know I'm just we're, we're, we're having a discussion, aren't we? I don't know, but you know they're, they're making a lot of money. You know the boxers that are kind of busting their ass that aren't really earning a lot. Are we really going to say they've got to throw ten percent of their they Already, probably throwing ten and fifteen and twenty percent away, left, right, and centre anyway. Yeah, you know, I don't know. I don't, I, don't, I don't know what the answer is.
2: Is it something that you that you worry about? What might what might be coming down the road for you in, in twenty years? Is it something that that you would talk to other fighters who are who are retired about, or do you just kind of feel like what will happen will happen, and there's no real? point in in thinking about it too much
0: I I never really thought about any of this during the early part of my career at all you know I didn't because well I just didn't if I did I probably wouldn't have been able to perform the way I did and train the way I did but certainly at the end when I was was thinking about retirement and, uh, and stuff I mean of course ambition desires performances hunger all that was a big part of that but definitely I did start to think about health about my health. You know, I'd had a 15-year pro career, had a hard career, I'd sparred hard. Um, you know, uh, or not, not even just the brain, even, even my eye. I had, I had some pretty horrendous black eyes and eye trouble where my, my eyeball was sore for four or five weeks after a fight, you know, even when all the bruising is gone. I still had pains in the back of my eye and you hear of so many people with detached retinas and things and relatively speaking, touch wood so far, I think I came out fairly unscathed. Uh, you know, that, that's debatable. <laughs> but, you know, it, it, it's, um. but yeah, it was definitely at the end the concern. Because I think as you get older, you, you, these are things you start to to, fact, to take account of a bit more. But uh, certainly early on in my career, I don't think I thought of it so much. What can be done? I don't know. It's, it's. I don't know. I, I think, I guess the coaching, I think the coaching, I think the sparring definitely, like it was interesting hearing Trish say about me, that, Mickey Ward said that. I would say a lot of fighters would say the same thing, that the bulk of their damage was done in the gym as opposed to the fights.
2: So how's your kind of relationship with boxing these days, Tris? Because you, you love it, you love the sport, and you love the fighters particularly. And that, that's why it's because of both things that you've that you've done this, but how do you find watching Boxing now is it a different experience to how it used to be i'd imagine it it must be
1: yeah it's definitely changed uh i yeah it's definitely changed i still love to watch the boxing like that i can't i can't imagine that changing too much but you know like i was at mickey ward Gatti one and i was sat with amongst fans and they were on the seats next to me and they were jumping up and down on their chairs excited and i wasn't far behind them and i remember actually mickey ward fighting emmanuel Gustafsson. and i was in a bar in catskill at the time and it was a great tear up i don't know if you guys have both seen that but a great great tear up. and it was sort of and i knew it was going to be a great fight so i made sure i got sort of prime location in this bar and then i went and sort of gradually like after a couple of rounds i was getting more people in from the bar into this tv room and saying quick come see this come and see this and I was so excited because I love those sort of fights. And then, you know, years down the line, I cover, you know, some of Matt's ding-dongs and I've covered Frotch and Kessler and some of those great fights, both of those fights, and a lot of Manny Pacquiao fights. And, and you know, it was thrilling. You know, Manny Pacquiao, Marquez 4 was a great war and then a, a, a horrific knockout. Manny Pacquiao got Miguel, uh, Miguel Cotto as well. Like, seen some spectacular fights. And now, and I love them and I love the wars, but now I like a different style and those sort of war-gatty fights, hey, credit where it's due, like, I don't have an ounce of that courage and desire or ambition. Uh, and, you know, what those guys did, and I was at two of those, two of the three fights, um, was outstanding and should be remembered for years to come. Obviously, it came at a cost for Mickey, and I expected would come at a cost for Arturo, you know, down the line. So those fights, you know, when I sort of see, I, it's tough for me, like when I sort of see a Ted Cheeseman go back to the well, you think that's tough, you know, he's had another tough one there, and like, you sort of have a mental checklist and think, ah, oh, you know, and it becomes guilty, you know, I do, become, I hold my hands up, great fight, Ted, thanks for the entertainment, I loved it, I hope everything's alright. You know, and, and same with Sam, Sam Eggington the other night. And I thought, you know, I thought he boxed really well. And I was like, geez, you know, how many, how many more Sam got left in him? You know, even though he's relatively young, he's had a hard career. You start to think about this sort of stuff when you watch it. So then when you watch, when you watch an artist and and you watch a boxer and, you know, and it's competitive, but it's not brutal, brutal. I get as much satisfaction out of that now as I did a good war in the old days. So I watch it with a different eye and, you know, I sort of, I fell out of love with the politics of boxing for sure for a long period of time with the stupid, you know, ridiculous suspensions that were meted out or not meted out to fighters who failed drugs tests, you know, gave up the will to live writing about Manny Pacquiao, Floyd Mayweather for five years. And now I sympathize with Matt Christie who seems to have that now for the Joshua Fury thing for the next few years. Uh, and all the all the shenanigans that go on behind and behind closed doors and stuff where you know stuff's going on but like fighters don't want to tell you too much because they want dates and so they're not going to sort of grass up promoters and promoters are thinking that they're sort of the best thing since sliced bread and you've heard that they're not and it's a very difficult balance like the politics and the stuff that goes on behind the scenes in boxing it's a real turnoff which is one of the reasons why i do boxing life stories because it's my passion it's speaking to fighters speaking to trainers, speaking to the people I really want to spend time with. And, and it allows me to sort of stay involved in the sport at that level. Because, you know, when I go back to my start in the, in the gym as a, as a young amateur, um, you know, I love being a part of the club and I love the other fighters and, you know, guys I'm still in touch with now, still in touch with my first amateur trainer. And I remember that passion and it was about being in the gym and being part of that community that, that, you know by now going around the gyms and speaking to fighters that's that's where i fell in love with the sport and that's where my love is
2: well that's the perfect that's the perfect segue into a couple of other things i wanted to talk talk to you about before we before we let you go and 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 they're, they're, they're two sides of the same coin basically because one of them you did for or for the for the print format and one you're doing now for the for the broadcast format and it's the road to nowhere and boxing live stories so The Road to Nowhere, which was in this bookshelf, it's in this bookshelf. It's fairly well-thumbed, actually. I've um, Honestly, I've read that three times, I think. And I just love it because for people who don't know, shame on you if you don't know. But if you don't know, Tris schlepped around the States in the early 2000s um, with a notepad, not very much money uh, and a greyhound bus ticket uh, and some addresses basically every now and again a phone number but quite often not a phone number tracking down old champions uh, to write articles about them uh, and try to fund these adventures that way then years down the line decided to to turn them into a book he wasn't planning on doing that originally and and the fact that he wasn't planning to do that originally probably makes it even better actually because you're not looking for that kind of hollywood thing that you might be if you're writing a book and and you know I don't know. I've never done it, so maybe that's wrong. But it just struck me that that it turned out kind of kind of perfectly. Some of those stories are just, are just great. I mean, that must have been that must have been the time of your life doing that because the freedom to do that, the the initiative to do it, the kind of courage to do it too. Because you're in some quite sketchy parts of town at, at times. You must look back on that now and just think, I can't quite believe I did it. But Jesus Christ, I'm glad I did do it.
1: Yeah, there was like, so they were the best days of my life, really. Um, Sort of 2000 to 2004, I was living in America, um, on and off. Uh, And those trips around interviewing the old fighters who sort of vanished um, brings back so many fond memories. And, uh, you know, every time that someone's died from there, there's not many left now from the road to nowhere. Uh, I'm not sure I've been necessarily brought to tears, but it really levels my day to the point where I feel, because these guys, you know, people like Aaron Pryor, Matthew Sa Mohamed, guys that became really good friends of mine. It's one of the reasons why I've done damage as well, But guys that became friends of mine. And I don't I don't mean that lightly, like, I mean, actual friends where we would chat and, you know, I'd stay with them. These guys, I was no one there. I'm not saying I'm a somebody now, but I was no one then. I hadn't written for anybody. And these people let me into their homes, and either let me stay with them or took me out to dinner. I ended up obviously seeing people like Gene Fulmer and oh my god, obviously it's an endless list Chuck Wetner, Jose Torres, Marvin Johnson, Matthew Sard. Obviously became super close with Matthew Yaki Lopez, um, all the way from, from New York to Vegas and as far north as Toronto and as far south as uh, so George Shavalo in Toronto and Florentino Fernandez down in Miami. They were great days, and at the time they sucked because I had no money. So sometimes I was going like two, two and a half days without food. But what I do is I would think, right, I need to sleep. And I would go for 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 those trips. I was going to America for say forty days at a time. In those forty days, I would spend maybe three or four nights in in shitty motels or hotels. The rest of the time I was on the go, so I was sleeping on the buses in bus stations. I'd go to sleep in some gyms if a fighter would let me crash in the gym. Sleep. I slept on the riverbanks of the Hudson a couple of times. We'll go and, I would go to <laughs> one place in New York. I don't know if Matt was going to New York frequently then, but it was in the days of internet cafes. It was an internet cafe in Times Square at the time. And it was huge. It was near one of the big cinemas. And because like it, it, they used to charge you based on the time of day. So three in the afternoon, it was heaving. They'd charge you sort of 10 or $15 an hour to get on a terminal. So I would go in there at like 11, midnight. And it was like 12, 12 cents for an hour. And I'd be half asleep at the computer, just thinking I just need to stay somewhere safe till daylight. And I'd be in a nodding dog at this terminal and have to go and put in my 12 cents or whatever it was from basically midnight through till about four o'clock till it was daybreak. And then before the gyms could open, I could get down to Gleason's or go and do some interviews or go and sleep in Central Park for a couple of hours and get, get some actual shut-eye. And then the day would start all over again. And then by the time I'd finished doing my interviews, I'd be out in that internet terminal, nodding dog again, back to Central Park, get a few more hours sleep, and then back out on the buses to Cincinnati or wherever it was. So yeah, they were great days. In fact, I mean, this won't work for the audio. This is, you know, you get asked these questions. What would you save in a fire? And apart from my dogs, I have a box here. And that's all my stuff from the road to nowhere. So all my pictures, all the audio tapes, um, everything's in there. My visiting, my visiting papers for going to see uh, James Scott in prison. Um, everything is in that box, and it means so much to me that I did that at the best times. And what people don't know really is that before those travels, I'd been busting my ass for America in two years, or in America for two years, and I was trying to get a break in boxing, doing anything, and you know, I was around uh, New York. I was around Atlantic City. I was in Philadelphia with Joe Frazier. I was in Atlantic City with Shimon Alvarez and Levanda Johnson and Cash White and people like that, and obviously Matthew Sard. And, you know, I was in training camps. I was with the Klitschkos in the, in the power gym when they were in town to fight Mercer. And I was with Mercer in Pleasantville when he was getting ready to fight Brian Nielsen. I can't even remember how, but I wound up at that fight in Denmark as part of Mercer's team. And it was just, just a weird thing. I was just involved in boxing in every way, shape or form. And I had no money, couldn't get anywhere. People would just give me tickets and they'd just know me from the gyms. And it was like a two-year crash course of, it was quite funny because I didn't really build many relationships there. And you look back and you think, well, why, why don't I really know anyone for that time? It's because I was a kid and all I did was shut up and listen. And I was so respectful of people that I just didn't say much, but I just knew I wanted to be involved in boxing. So I just hung around and was as helpful as I could possibly be, be, possibly be. And whether that meant carrying spit buckets around the gyms or cleaning that Catskill gym with bloody toothbrush with Leonard Pierre to make it immaculate, as we did on a couple of occasions, or even I was a round card guy for women's fights that were showing Delaware, Tracy Harris-Patterson's last fight, there was a women's fight there and I had to get my kit off and walk around with the round card for the women's (laughs) fights. I just wanted to be involved in the sport. I hated that. And I do have a picture. There's there's photographic evidence, but um, I just was desperate to be involved with boxing and, and all in the back of my mind, I was thinking, you know, I want to make a difference in this sport. And I want to, I want, unlike a lot of people that meet in the boxing media now, who I think build their own profiles and use the sport to try and elevate themselves. I want to leave boxing better than I found it.
0: So actually, Trace, When you crashed on the airbed in
1: my living room in New York, you were actually fucking living it up. (laughs) Oh, mate, that was luxury. That was luxury. Yeah, people won't know that. Yeah, it was funny. I I wondered if we were going to go there when you tried to get me onto the wire that I could never watch. I just not got through it. But, yeah, that was funny. And then people thought that boxing news, you you know, you travel everywhere and that. But I've always travelled on a budget to try and obviously make everything last. So, yeah, when you it was quite funny. I remember you let me crash there. It was when... uh, it was for Cotto Margarito too, wasn't it?
0: Yeah, that's right.
1: And uh, yeah, I stayed there. And I think I remember walking down the street with you once. And I said, you do realise, Matt, like I can't cover any more of your fights now. And you looked at me sort of quizzically. And I was like, because if anyone knows that I crash at your place, they'll think I'm biased towards you. So I never covered another one of your fights because <laughs> I n- no one knows that till now, the fact that I stayed at your place. But I would never have my impartiality or integrity questioned. So someone said, oh, well you know, you give a Matt a soft report there because you know he once crashed on his on his floor, and uh, but no, I did. Yeah, it was a good time that was. I appreciate it too.
2: No, good.
0: But and ironically, on the subject we're talking about, anyway, I mean Miguel Cotto, the first fight, the hand wraps, then the second fight wasn't going to happen because of the the eye damage. That's right. To Margarita. and you know yeah. the New York Commission were back and forth with that for a long time before the fight got sanctioned.
1: Exactly. Exactly. And then there were issues, you know. Going back to the politics, there was obviously all the issues with John Murray and Brandon Rios on the way in there, and Rios missing the way and the way and all the all you know, all the bollocks with boxing.
2: Well, I agree. A couple of things you said there are very kind of illuminating about the way you go about the job, and um yeah, I, I couldn't agree. I couldn't agree more. This 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 sport is about. It's about. It's about the health of the sport. It's about the. It's about the fighters. It should never be about us. You know, we're we're observers, facilitators. Um ego just seems to play such a massive part now with 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 a lot of people who are doing what we're doing in in different ways. And impartiality in a lot of ways seems to have just gone completely out of the window. It seems to be very kind of factional at times. Everybody needs to nail their colours to one particular. Mast and either you're for one thing or you're against it everything just the world generally just seems to become a much more binary place now you know it's it's it's, uh it's impossible to like one fighter and and like another one as well um it would appear at times even we need to talk talk a bit of boxing life stories before we before we let you go though because there's been a lot of boxing podcasts come up over the last couple of years this is one of them um, you started yours before us. And there weren't quite as many when you started. Uh, Boxing Life Stories is just a great example of of just a really good idea. And I often think you know when something is a really good idea when you discover it and think to yourself, fucking hell, that's a good idea. How come I didn't think of that? Because it's the simplicity of it, isn't it? It's hard graft. It's hard graft because you've got to get around the place and, and see all these people you wouldn't be able to do it if you didn't have the contacts you've got. You wouldn't be able to get as much out of it if you didn't know as much as you know. But turning up to meet people and asking them to tell you about their life, that's a fairly simple format. But nobody had done it. Nobody had thought to do it. Yeah,
1: I mean, I don't know that I necessarily knew exactly where it was going to go when I first did the fir- when I did the first one with Adam Booth. Um, it was kind of, you know, it was kind of going to be a like catching microcosms of stories. So I think some of the early ones was, you know, Steve Lott talking about his journey with Mike Tyson and Pat Lynch talking about living vicariously with Arturo Gatti and then Paul Williams, you know, talking about his his accident. So it was the idea was to be stories within the stories, but then it just became a long shoot through of, of a life story. And, and the thing was, I remember... I, it took me ages to get into podcasts. And I remember Deck Taylor put me in, in the direction of uh, um, a Matthew Walker podcast with Joe Rogan and Matthew Walker's The Sleep Diplomat. And it was, I found it fascinating. I was like, it was a long-form interview about sleep. And it was loads of stuff I didn't know, but it would help me with performance and training and different things. And I found that great. And I remember I was going to actually a boxing fight in the O2. It might have been a Dylan White fight. And I was glued to it thinking... I was thinking I was going to be really tired driving back from that. And I was glued to this Joe Rogan podcast with Matthew Walker. And I thought, well, that's a great format. And then I saw that he'd done some fighters and I went back and listened to all his old boxing ones. And I was like, that's great. And then I was listening to some of the, some of the more contemporary podcasts. So like the sky toe to toe one and stuff. And I was sort of looked through the archives and all the, and then I looked at other podcasts and all the other pods out there were sort of about what had happened last week and what was coming this week and I was like well you know there seems to be a bit of a disconnect here where everyone's talking about the contemporary stuff in boxing but no one's got these long form Rogan-esque things and I'm don't get me wrong I'm not trying to sound Rogan or anything like that but where there was a longer conversation with one person and one voice to try and sort of drill down a little bit as to what makes someone tick and I was thinking that, you know apart from the Rogan's long form ones there was really nothing out there so obviously, I, I did that sit down with Adam Booth and it went really well and um, yeah, it just took, took off from there and it's three years in September it's been going and uh, loads of highs, loads of lows. I've done some in the U- I've done some in Ukraine and New York, Philadelphia, Boston, all up and down the UK, in Vegas, um, and hopefully I've got a few more left in me. We're heading to towards episode one hundred and fifty, which is a lot of grind, as you say.
2: Well, you're not going to run out of people. That's the that, that's the beauty of it. I mean, there are so many people in boxing whose, whose stories are absolutely fascinating, whether they're a big name or a medium name or whether there's somebody. And these are sometimes the best ones that a lot of people don't even know. Um, it took me a while to get into podcasts as well. And, and honestly, yours was one of the kind of first ones I started to listen to. Uh, and I just really enjoyed the kind of the long form of it. I really enjoyed just being able to get stuck into something um, that, Even ones where I felt like I probably knew their story and there wouldn't necessarily be anything new. There always is, because people forget things, things come back to them, different things that you might say might just strike a chord they hadn't really thought about for a while. I mean, how do you find also the... If you're gonna do a podcast then you've gotta you've gotta get behind it and push it on Twitter and Instagram and you've gotta try and stay up to date with the with the tech side of it and all these sorts of things. We we're not the best on on that front. Darren Reese, our producer, kind of corrals us and and basically does all of that for us, which was extremely fortunate because um that happened almost kind of um by accident, but have people have got plenty to say on social media about like anything anyone does. I mean, how how did you find all of that?
1: I mean, I am lucky. Like my the vast amount of the timeline I look at is is positive, so I'm very fortunate with with that and the feedback I've had um over time, uh, and I'm grateful for that as well. Because I am a, I'm a real snowflake. Like when it comes to criticism, you know, when I started obviously in, in journalism and you know, because I was a news journalist for a long period of time for the Hampshire Chronicle, you know, like serious news when I was freelancing in boxing. I was, I was working at an actual newspaper doing court reporting and numerous things like that before I became the editor of my local paper before I joined Boxing News. And, and so like the, the stuff that you touched upon a little bit earlier about celebrity and people being in it for themselves and building their profile, like that's not, me at all like I'm I'm not it doesn't sit right with me it's not comfortable I'm not comfortable so I'm not great putting anything out on social media um because I'd be wary of stuff coming back and you know that's probably it's probably put giant handcuffs on my career but it is what it is and I'd rather go to sleep at night next to my fiance and not be thinking of (laughs) to use Anthony Crawler's phrase Barry from Barnsley um and not have him going through my mind uh than, than you know thinking about the people that i live with and, and care about and want to spend my time with so i sort of wound my social media stuff down substantially and deleted the apps and now pop onto the websites once in a while to drop in some links and do some communication but it, it's massively limited just because i have a quiet life out in the new forest i walk dogs you know my dogs and i train and have just keep myself to myself and if people have a bad opinion of me, then it's sad and I I wish they didn't, but um, it's inevitable. You can't please. One thing I learned, the first thing I learned in the editor's chair of Boxing News is you can't please all the people all the time. All you can do is your best. And that's what I tried to do with Boxing Life Stories. You know, not everyone's a home run. As you said, some of the sleepers in there are the best ones, but you know, you just give it your best shot every time and just hope that people enjoy the stuff you put out.
2: Matt, I think what we enjoy about doing it is that you know you start something up and it and it's your thing, isn't it? And and you do it, you put it out there, people listen to it, like it. Hopefully, maybe they don't. You know, who cares? <laughs> to to an extent you know we do what we want to do and Trish does what what he wants to do um nobody asked us to do it nobody asked him to do it we just decided to do it and people can think what they like about it but generally you know the, the the feedback's pretty good i mean i think there's a lot of love for for boxing life stories absolutely 100% i do um you know I, i'd, I'd see nothing but positive things are uh, th- things about it but that that's the great thing about this platform and that's what we like about it is that is that you can do what you like
1: yeah
0: yeah, yeah absolutely i mean look we we all love boxing don't we? we we love it all we love we you know there's things we wish were different in boxing there's things we would like to see change in boxing the subject we've spoken about today especially we'd like to see changes there you know the pension funds for retired fighters that tris spoke about with robert smith that never went anywhere It'd be great something like that could come about but ultimately we we love boxing don't we we can knock it and we can wish certain things but ultimately we do love boxing we love the sport of it and as much as the politics and the business can drive us up the wall crazy at times <laughs> we're pretty fucking obsessed with that too you know because there's you know there's a lot of intrigue there's a lot of characters there's a lot of oh no I can't believe that happened you know it, it, it it's gripping it gets a hold of you. It, it, it it really does and it's Listen, we just we just we love boxing, don't we? We love talking about it. We love the characters, we love the stories, and that, I think that's why we do with the podcast. I mean, we 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 just enjoy it, don't we?
2: Yeah, that's exactly it. That's exactly it. And, and particularly over the course of the last year, you know, particularly last year when lockdown came and and all of that, it was it was great just to keep it going, uh, be able to chat with people uh, once a week, and and just stay thinking about the sport and. Just a little bit of of, of escapism. It's, it's, yeah, I can't imagine not doing it. Uh, Put it that way. I just can't imagine not doing it. So final thing before we let you go. um, I say that four or five times during the course of a podcast normally. He's in his boxing cave, Tris Dixon. Uh, It's pretty impressive, I have to say. The most impressive thing in it, if you're watching this on the video, is right behind him. And if he just moves a little bit to his right, He's got a Cuba tracksuit, um, kind of. It almost looks like it's on a mannequin. I'm not sure if it is quite in the corner there. Now, I see that and I'm immediately burning with jealousy because I've luckily for me, I've been to a lot of big international amateur tournaments. And what I've always been trying to do is either steal or purchase kit. And a Cuban tracksuit is something that, I mean, I, the, the limit of what I would pay for that is probably disturbingly high. How, how the hell did you get your hands on that?
0: Andy, that's not what I want to ask. I'm thinking, is that the 39 kilo Class B small boy champions tracksuit? <laughs>
1: <laughs> so that that top actually uh, is a Lenny Salises from Belfast when he beat David Hay. Ah, uh,
2: 2001 World Championships.
1: And uh, <laughs> it, it came to me via you know a dear friend of mine called Phil Rooney, who's no longer with us. And he was uh, a mover and shaker on the Irish scene in Northern Ireland. And I tell you, there's two things above that. Two of my amateur vests are above that, the white and the black ones. And then actually, probably uh, not far behind that road to nowhere thing, but a little bit in terms of sentiment. But behind there, actually, that's all my my press credentials.
2: Okay, yeah. I never keep those for some reason. I never keep them. I don't know why.
0: Probably. So when Tris picked that up then it actually I could see now that it was because Tris is a pretty big geezer <laughs>
1: <laughs> so yeah so that's all my press credentials so there's the, I don't know how many there are there but even now just looking I see that actually the Cotto Margarito one is is facing me there and then De La Hoya Os, uh, De La Hoya Stevie Forbes Amir Khan Frotch Groves, Pacquiao De La Hoya some bangers there some, some great memories and hey look this is Going back to where we started, you know, it's, those guys are giving me so much memory, so many great memories. This is why damage has come about, because, you know, I, I own boxing. It's given me so much over the last 25 years. And uh, and it's my way of, of trying to make things better for these guys that have given me so many great memories over the years.
2: OK, so we will finish that with... Um... Just a good old fashioned plug for the book. So it's out now. It's out now in the USA um, and in the UK. Just give us all the details as to where people can get it. Publishers shout out to anybody you want to, you want to mention. Bear in mind people, of course, you know, you should, you should double up really. You should go for a Dixon double, get damage and the road to nowhere. If you haven't read the road of road to nowhere. Um, if you're listening to Mac taken, you haven't read the road to nowhere. I'm slightly ashamed of you. If I'm honest, <laughs> um so if you just uh yeah t- take it away to
1: um yeah so if damage is it's it's out it's been out from uh 25th of may in the u.s 27th in the uk um four years in the making it's available from amazon waterstones awkward booksellers try your local uh try your local booksellers first and foremost i always recommend that if possible um and huge thanks to hamilcar for publishing so you know when When I wrote, when I started writing the book, it was one of it like Road to Nowhere. I didn't do it. It wasn't for the money. So I started writing the book already. So once Hamilcar got wind, I was writing the book, not even through me. I can't even remember who it was, but they contacted me and said, we hear you're doing this. You know, that's something we believe in. These guys are actually a perfect fit. And when I was in Boston doing the research for the book at the brain bank and and with Mickey Ward and stuff, uh, I went out to dinner with Kyle and Andy and, I couldn't have asked for two better teammates for this project because they're not just paying lip service to this book and saying oh it's a tris dixon book he's got a following on boxing life stories let's let's work with him they want this subject matter out there and they wanted and they believed in the project from the get-go and they are quite possibly i wouldn't say quite possibly as enthusiastic for it as as i am and so to, to match my ambition and to match my feelings towards that. Um, I couldn't, I couldn't, I couldn't hope to work with any better guys. So I'm really grateful for that.
2: And that's why people need to read it. That that's why, you know, we were always, always going to do this because, uh, this is an important subject and, and the more conversation we can create around it, the better An enormous amount of work has gone into this. When you read it, that will become clear. It's years of, of painstaking research. Um, well written, but you wouldn't ex- expect anything less of uh, of somebody who's been at this for a good while. And it's it's a passion project. It's uh, you know, Tris hasn't come on today because he's you know trying to sell a few more books to make a, a bit more money. This was never about that, um, and that just shines through. That just shines through from from pretty much every page, really. So I do urge people to go out there and get it and uh, get on Twitter and and talk about it, because as we discussed when we were talking about the book and and CTE, unless there is some kind of movement that gathers some, some real pace, unless there's some public opinion behind this, then that's what we need, basically. That's the vehicle um, upon which all kind of changes is, is mobilized. So thanks very much for your time today. Uh It's been a long time coming this, we will definitely we will definitely try and persuade you back on it at, uh, at some point. What, what's your next, what's your next gig then? What are you, what are you up to? Uh,
1: so I've just been up to Sheffield and Leeds and I've done podcasts with Josh Warrington, Sonny Edwards, uh, possibly I'd I never want to say the best ever. And I would never say that because everyone sort of shares so much, but I did an extremely memorable one with Glyn Rhodes uh, and then Ryan Rhodes and Dennis Hobson. So I had a nice bunch up there. So, got to got those to work on for the next five weeks. And now I'm also underway with a biography about Matthew Saad Mohammed, who uh, I mentioned earlier, uh, did become a friend, a guy who used to let me crash on his friend's floors because Matthew didn't have a place to stay either. Matthew and I would kick around from, from apartment to apartment in Atlantic City during those broke days. And some days there'd be a spare bed and he'd take the bed and I'd take the floor. And sometimes I'd take the bed and he'd take the floor. He and I, obviously in the road to nowhere, there's that scene of Matthew and I going up to Hopkins Trinidad and Madison Square Garden as well. Um, I had some wonderful memories with Matthew and I started writing his book um, in the first lockdown. I actually found a box. I put it put it all behind me because it's, it's still quite emotive for me talking about Matthew. And I put the box away and I was making rumours and sorting my, sorting my life out as people did in the first lockdown. And I found this box and it was a period of time where I was slumming it in Atlantic city, but I was going to Philadelphia in the library every day talking and me and Matt were talking about me doing a book about his life story, but I was a nobody and he was unfortunately a nobody. He'd become a nobody having been the best in the world at, at what he did. We talked about doing this book and um, I was going to the Philadelphia library. I was going through all the microfilms uh, every day and I was getting all the stuff from his career because it wasn't online anywhere. So I was going through the, Philadelphia Inquirer, the Daily News, the Bulletin, which is no longer here, got all the clippings. And I was interviewing Matthew daily. And anyway, I found this box of all the clippings of hours and hours of microcassettes. And I thought, you know, I'm probably in a position now in my career where I can get a publisher. Um, I've actually got a signed contract here. The publisher, because well, I was trying to, Matthew said, you know, we'd actually said we tried to get a publisher. I spoke to an agent and said, the first thing you're going to need to do is to get Matthew to give him, give you his word that, you know, on on paper that he's going to give you the exclusive rights to his book. And uh, I don't know that it's to hand, but anyway, I have a signed contract from Matthew saying I give Triss Dixon the exclusive rights to my life (coughs) to work on the book together. So and that was in this box. And I was thinking, you know, Matthew died in 2014 and I promised him we were going to do our best to get his story out there. I've had that promise and now I'm in a position where I can execute it and I I hopefully will shine a new light on his life story for future generations.
2: Well, and it's a hell of a story. It's a hell of a story uh, from beginning to end. Um, So yeah, I look forward to that one. Absolutely. Uh, So yeah, thanks again. Thanks again. This has been great fun. Uh, Thanks for listening, everybody. Uh, Normal things apply if you can, get onto iTunes and give us a rating and a review, that kind of thing. It makes it easier for people to, to find Macklin's take. And we're on YouTube as well, of course. So if you want to head over there and have a little bit of a look, we've been a bit slow on YouTube the last couple of weeks, but um, we'll pick it back up again when when the pace of the boxing world starts to move a little bit quicker. We, we just didn't really feel that we needed to be doing a YouTuber day Contributing to the already seemingly endless amount of discussion on on AJ Fury, when to be to be perfectly honest with you, we didn't have anything new to say about it. Um, we like to bring a bit of insight, a bit of originality, if we can. We may fail sometimes, but that's that's always the that's always the intention. Um, so take it easy, everybody. We'll catch you again next time.
1: Back in town I said Jenny Diver whoa, he taught me Look out to Miss Lottie Linger. And old Lucy Brown Yes, that Lion forms on the right, babe Not that Maggie Back in